Well, like a few of you uh, in the room tonight, um, I grew up during what was called the Cold War. Uh, it was a period of extreme tension uh, between the United States and all of our allies in the Western Bloc and the Soviet Union uh, in, and their allies in the Eastern Bloc, and it was called the Cold War uh, because uh, while the two so-called superpowers uh, supported opposing sides uh, in smaller skirmishes or regional conflicts, the, the two superpowers never actually fought one another on a, lar- a larger scale. Uh, the conflict was uh, motivated by a desire to exert uh, you know, global influence ideologically and geopolitically. Um, it included an arms race that involved uh, nuclear weapon development and uh, conventional military deployment. But the real battle for dominance uh, involved psychological warfare and uh, propaganda uh, campaigns, uh, espionage and trade embargoes and the race to the moon, um, as well as rivalry at sporting events. I mean, pretty broad spectrum there. Um, on October 22, 1982, a man by the name of Richard Halloran wrote an article in the New York Times about a pastoral letter that was published by the National Conference of Catholic Bishops, in which the bishops were writing to declare their opposition to nuclear weapons. And in the article, Mr. Halloran included the following quote. Uh, from that letter. The bishops wrote this, in the nuclear arsenals of the United States and the Soviet Union alone, there exists a capacity to do something no other age could imagine. We can threaten the created order. And then they said this, today the destructive potential of the nuclear powers threatens the sovereignty of God over the world He has brought into being. We could destroy His work. Now, their underestimation of God and the overestimation of man is quite astonishing. The consensus among the bishops was that God's sovereignty over His creation could be thwarted by the plans and programs of world leaders. The picture they painted was of God sitting in heaven and wringing His hands, worrying and wondering if, you know, what what am I going to do? I had no idea they were going to create nuclear weapons. It was as if He would be impotent to handle anything that we could possibly dish out. Somehow they were oblivious to the fact that if man could thwart God's sovereignty, it was man who was sovereign, not God. At some point, the bishops had come to believe that influential and powerful leaders of influential and powerful nations could actually determine their own destinies and the destinies of others. They believed, in the words of William Ernest Henley, that man is the master of his own fate and the captain of his own soul. But to believe that the creature can usurp the authority of the Creator is the epitome of arrogance. 
And this type of delusional thinking has plagued man for a very long time. As a matter of fact, it's what we call a spirit of Babylon that we'll see tonight in our text that I just read, particularly in verses, or the first nine verses of chapter 11. But as the text is going to show us, as we've just heard, as it was read, man is the one who is actually impotent. And God is, well, we're, we're inferior, we're impotent and inferior to a magnificent, merciful, and sovereign and omnipotent God. We're going to look at the story of the nations tonight. And we have two points to uh, the outline. We want to look at first the who and the where of the nations from chapter 9, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 10, and then the how of the nations in chapter 11. Uh, but let's pray before we continue, all right? Uh, Father, would you give us ears to hear and prepare our hearts and minds to receive your word? Would you grant me grace and fill me with your spirit that I might do something good for you this evening? Would you equip me? For that to which you've called me, my desire is that I do something good for you and for your church this evening, so may that be so. And I pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and for the sake of his church. Amen. Well, to catch you up in case you weren't here last week, in chapter 9, um, we answered the why question. It was the why question of the nations. The nations would be established because of the blessing and the curse of Noah that he had pronounced on his sons. Shem, if you'll remember, was blessed because he not only honored his father, but he was, in fact, in a special covenant relationship with God. Japheth was also blessed because he, too, had honored his father, and part of that blessing was that he would be welcomed into and dwell in the tents of uh, his older brother Shem. But, but, but Ham, or really Ham's son, Canaan, uh, was cursed, and not just for his father's sin, but his own sin, because he uh, was, in fact, his father's son, and therefore just like his dad. And, of course, Canaan's offspring uh, would be uh, servants of both uh, his uncles and his uncle's offspring. Well, in chapter 10, so that's the why, in, in chapter 10, we're given uh, the answers to who and where, the who and where questions of the nations. And I want to quickly point out three things that I found interesting about chapter 10, and we're going to draw uh, a takeaway, one takeaway that I think is very applicable to us today out uh, of these three things. Um, but first we notice, and actually I think there are four, but anyway, first we notice Moses uh, did not present, if you notice, he did not present the offspring of each son according to their birth order. Right? Their birth order was Shem, Japheth, and Ham. But he also didn't present them according to the order that he gives in verse 18 of chapter 9 or in verse 1, chapter 10, and that order was Shem, Ham, and Japheth. He lists them in this third order, and he lists them in order of importance, from least importance to most importance. In other words, the order that he wrote in, he determined based upon 
how important the line was going to be according to how much time he would spend with that line for the rest of the narrative in Genesis. So, for example, Moses began with Japheth, and Japheth's line was made up of the nations to the north and to the west, and actually that were furthest away from the future home of the Israelites in the promised land. Then he moves to Ham, and Ham's line was made up of those nations to the south, but also those nations that were closest to the promised land and who actually resided in the promised land and would have to be removed from the promised land before Israel moved in. And of course, then he concludes with the line of Shem that would include the line of Israel. In the words of Derek Kidner, of the three families of humanity, Japheth and Ham are dealt with first to leave a clear field to the history of Shem in the remainder of the book. And in the words of Gordon Wenham, theological dead ends like Cain's line in chapter 4 and Ham's line in chapter 10 are mentioned before the highway, the main highway is described, which would have been Seth's line in chapter 5 and then Shem's line in chapter 10. Now, secondly, Moses didn't list all of the nations of the Old Testament. We don't read all of the nations, but we do read of 70, and there are 70 that are considered the 70 most important, and that's significant, and we'll talk about that in in just a little while. Uh, Thirdly, Alan Ross points out that Moses used the names of people and cities and tribes and countries to differentiate between the offspring of Noah's sons, and he did so by their languages and their families, their nations, and their lands. In other words, the boundaries that set them all apart from one another were linguistic and familial and political and geographical. And there were four things, not three. Lastly, we find Uh, We need to notice that Moses began chapter 10 with these words, these are the generations of the sons of Noah. And then the chapter ends with these words, these are the clans of the sons of Noah. And what Moses is communicating is that he, by beginning and ending, uh, well, he began and ended with the fact that all of humanity began with Noah. All roads lead to Noah, and of course, Noah's road leads to Adam, so humanity shares one origin, which is why Paul said in Acts 17 that we read as part of our preparation for worship, he said this, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is actually not far from each one of us, for in Him we live and move and have our being, as even some of our own poets have said, for we indeed are His offspring. So what do we take away from this long list, this genealogy? And very simply, this chapter tells us that the nations should be important to us. The nations should be important to us. Though, though there are things that differentiate between us, though we, we are divided, we're all basically cousins. We're all created in God's image. We all come from one man. 
So regardless of the family you grew up in and I grew up in, regardless of the language that we may speak or languages that we may speak, regardless of our ethnicity, regardless of our geographic locations, regardless of our politics, we're all family in some respect. So, brothers and sisters, even though we are called out of an unbelieving world and we're to separate ourselves from that unbelieving world, we cannot isolate ourselves from that unbelieving world. Judgment is going to come against every tribe, nation, and tongue, and and the people of God are going to be made up from every tribe, nation, and tongue. So, we cannot be indifferent to the nation. And what that means is is that racism and xenophobia are enemies of humanity, and they must be opposed. But we must remember that they are the results of the curse of the fall, and they're the results of the curse of Canaan. And the only way to defeat them is through spiritual rebirth. And the internal renewal of the heart of man by the Spirit through the gospel, period. So that's the who and the where of chapter 10. What about the how in chapter 11? Well, interestingly enough, the nations, of course, came uh, came about through the blessing of God, right? God blessed the sons of Noah, he, he allowed them and gave them the, the ability to be fruitful and multiply and gifted them with children. But the nations also came about through God's judgment. The judgment of man for several reasons, including their failure to fill the earth. Look at verse 1 of chapter 11. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they, and they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So mankind was united And that union or that unity was exemplified in the fact that they all had one common language. And of course, this common language allowed them to communicate. And because they could communicate, it reduced the unknown. And when the the unknown was reduced and and the more that was known was, or, or, or the more they knew, right, the more they knew, the more confusion, fear, suspicion, and paranoia were held at bay. The less worry and anxiety that was there. And at some point, they decide to leave Ararat. And they travel east until they arrive at this place called Shinar, which was real flat and very wide, an area in Mesopotamia. And under the leadership of Nimrod, they leave their nomadic ways behind. And they establish a city. They establish Babylon. And we learn from verses 8 and 9 back in chapter 10 that Nimrod was the first of the mighty men. It also says that he was a mighty hunter. But unfortunately, he was a descendant of Canaan, 
which means he was under the curse. And so he would become much more than a hunter of wild game. He would become a hunter of men. He was a wild, uh, wildly influential leader, and he would conquer nations. And his power and might would be used for, an un, for ungodly reasons and in an, in an ungodly manner. As a matter of fact, um, men settling down and setting up permanent residence and Building a city was evidence of their desire not only to protect themselves, but to exercise their own autonomy and to reject God by rejecting His mandate to fill the earth. So their repeated call to come let us, come let us, was simply a call from man to man to reject the Lord. To stand against the Lord. But this desire for autonomy was only the beginning. It didn't stop there. There was also this attitude of extreme arrogance and pride. They had this over-exaggerated sense of self-importance that ruled over them. And Nimrod and the people he led not only wanted to exert their power, uh, they wanted to promote themselves and their in, uh, ingenuity, and he wanted to amass this great deal of prestige and make a name for themselves. They wanted to be honored and glorified by all those that were around them and that would come after them. And in the end, basically, the bottom line was they wanted to be like God. Actually, they wanted to be greater than God. And this was exemplified in the building of this tower, this grand tower, this tall tower that was, again, a little hyperbole, but, but intended to, uh, to be a gate to heaven. It was going to inspire everybody that saw it. And it was nothing more than a monument to themselves, and it had this temple in the top in which they could worship themselves. In the words of Derek Kidner, in the Bible, the city increasingly came to symbolize the godless society with its pretensions and persecutions and pleasures and sins and superstitions, its riches and eventual doom. It was her sins that reached unto heaven. In Revelation, she's contrasted with the holy city which comes down out of heaven, whose open gates unite nations. Children, many of you might remember the song that Miss Wendy and I taught you uh, back in 2018 when we uh, started the church. Remember it's small group, those of you that were there, probably even can remember the, the motions. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. Some of you remember that? Well, Nimrod's version was a little different. I am so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing that I cannot do. Then the people would sing along their own version, we are so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing we cannot do. But God didn't miss 
a beat. He saw it all. The rebellion didn't go unnoticed. And he responded. Look at verse 5. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down. And they're confused their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there, was, there the Lord confused their language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. The, the, the combination of the Lord's words and, and Moses, uh, His irony, the way He, the way he communicates, uh, gives us the very sentiment, shows us or exhibits very clearly the sentiment of Psalm 2 verse 4 that says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision or mocks them. Because here's the picture, Moses said the Lord had to come down out of heaven to see this magnificent city in this marvelous tower that could reach and be called the gates of heaven. Moses not only knew that if a tower was going to last, it would be built with stone, not brick and mortar. And he also knew that the Lord's throne upon which he sits is so high in the heavens that in the words of Isaiah 66, the earth is his footstool. Which means that little tower of theirs was nothing but a splinter on the leg of the stool that he couldn't see from where he sat. He had to come down. And so as he did at creation, he consulted within himself, right? As Calvin said, all eternal wisdom and power reside within himself. So he didn't need outside counsel, and he determined within himself, in the words of Derek Kidner, he said, peace and unity were not the ultimate good. He determined, in the words of Alan Ross, that fragmentation was better than collective apostasy. Let me say that again. Fragmentation was better than collective apostasy. The potential for calamity was dangerous to the race, and God prevented it. So this call within God of come let us was a call from God to God to stand against man. God wasn't afraid of being overthrown, okay? He was not worried that man was somehow this legitimate rival. He was not concerned in the least. He knew that they didn't have the ability to do whatever they wanted. They were limited. But he did know that they had the ability to make, make a mess of things. Past history tells us that. And he knew how bad it would get if they were to remain united to one another in their sin. So seeing where things were going, and in light of the fact that he had promised never again to destroy the earth by flood, 
that he would both judge and restrain their sin by confusing their language and dispersing them, dispersing them across the face of the earth. And so the, this inability to communicate, this scattering would lead to confusion and fear and suspicion and paranoia and discord. And in the end, they didn't reach their goal. They made a name for themselves, but the name was not good. And the fear um, of being separated was realized. Those who were united were divided. Those who were gathered were now dispersed across the face of the earth. Their city was left incomplete. Though they sought to rebel against God's command to fill the earth, His purpose would not be thwarted. And though He would have rather have filled the earth with them, instead He filled the earth despite them. And once again, in the words of Alan Ross, the word Belal provided a satirical meaning of confusion for the proud Babylonian name. Because this gate of the gods fell far short of expectations, ending in confusion and chaos. And before I move on to our last point, I want to share another quote from Dr. Ross. It's just too good not to read. In each previous judgment, there was a gracious provision of hope, but in this judgment, there is none. It does not offer a token of grace a promise of any blessing, a hope of salvation, or a way of escape. There's nothing for the naked sinner, no protective mark for the fugitive, no rainbow in the sky. The primeval age ends with judgmental scattering and complete confusion. The blessing is not here. The world must wait. A new history. In view of this development, he says, the story of the scattering of the nations is actually the turning point of the book from primeval history to the history of blessing. From this very confused and dispersed situation, nations developed in utter, utter futility until God made a great nation through one man who himself would be scattered from the alluvial plain to the land of Canaan. The blessings of final redemption and unification would come through his seed. And of course, that man is Abraham, who you have to wait a week to be introduced to by Aaron. But that does lead us or bring us to the last point, because we all know, based upon our study so far, who the seed of Abraham is that would bring about that redemption and unification, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it's the Lord Jesus who came to seek and save the lost. It's the Lord Jesus who came to live, die, rise from the dead, and ascend to heaven to His Father's right hand for sinners like you and like me. It was the Lord Jesus, as we learned in Luke, who, whose earthly ministry was both a ministry of proclamation and presence through which He called people to repentance. He called people to turn to Him in faith and to trust in Him as their one and only Savior. He came proclaiming the kingdom of God and, and said it was near, right? Because He was near. And we saw, if you remember our study, we saw in 
the book of Luke, we saw his desire to reverse the confusion of Babel and to gather his people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And we saw it as he sent out 70. Probably symbolic of the 70 in Genesis. And we also see the confusion reversed at Pentecost. Pentecost where confusion gave way to understanding. Where all who were present, no matter their language, heard one gospel. Heard the same gospel. A gospel hope from the lips of the apostles and particularly Peter. As Matt read earlier from Acts 2, listen to Luke tell the story. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a, as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that... We hear each of us in our own native language. We hear them telling in our tongues the mighty works of God. Do you hear the language? There's confusion. They're bewildered. But they're bewildered because they're hearing the same message. The Spirit, through many languages, speaks one. And they all hear it. After His resurrection, Christ, by His Spirit, began to assemble a new humanity by gathering His people, by gathering those who are His, by gathering those who had been given to Him by His Father, and He began replacing confusion with understanding. He began opening ears and opening eyes, and He began the process of unifying that which had been divided. And brothers and sisters, that work is not complete. He continues that same work today. And for us, having been, having been ingathered, we are now to scatter. Because we've been sent to go into all the world to proclaim the gospel message that Jesus saves. And we're to, and we're to proclaim that to any and all who will hear. And just as the laborers were few when Jesus sent out the 70, the laborers still are few. And Jesus' instruction then is the same as it is today. As we go, we're to go, and we're also to pray that He would send others to join us in this global mission of proclamation. Brothers and sisters, we have a multitude outside these very doors, but we also have multitudes that we're trying to reach down at the University of Arkansas, the international students that are there. I mean, we also have missionaries in Belize and Turkey and Asia and the Middle East. And now I'm happy to say 
two in Japan. Because the nations matter. The nations matter. Because the truth of the matter is, most people today continue to have an attitude of arrogance. They continue to have an over-exaggerated sense of self-importance. They want to exert their power. They want to promote themselves and their ingenuity, and they want to amass, right? They want to amass a great deal of prestige and make a name for themselves. And we fall into the same trap, by the way. In the end, they want to be like God, if not greater than God. And so most people continue to place their hope in the things of man that will bring about unity and peace in the world. And again, we, do, we, we fall into the same trap. We, people are placing their hope in man's technological advancements. We place our hope in worldly economic systems. Hope is being placed in humanistic educational and psychological philosophies and, and theories, pharmacological breakthroughs, political promises and bipartisan legislation and gun laws and immigration regulations and social justice reforms and Diversity and equity and inclusion initiatives and self-sustainability and environmental policies. And in the end, all of those things is simply placing trust in man's wisdom apart from God's wisdom. There's no other way to describe them. But God will not be mocked. True unity and peace only comes within God's kingdom, of which His church is a part. And brothers and sisters, we must refuse to join in the building and in the trusting of monuments built for men, in honor of men. We must remain humble. And look to God who loves us and has called us to Himself through the Lord Jesus. Because Christ also has a call to come. And it's a call from God to man for man. So where those at Babel... Their call was from man to man to push against God. And while God's led us was a call from God to God to push against man, Christ comes and says, from man, from God to man, for man, says come. And that's not original with me, that's original with Joe Beakey, Joel Beakey, just to give credit where credit's due. Christ's call is for those who are thirsty to come and drink from living water and never thirst again. Christ's call 
is to those who are weary and heavy laden, who are overwhelmed by the burden of self-righteousness, His call is to come, that they might, that we might receive rest for our souls. The call of Christ is to come and follow Him, and He will make us fishers of men. The call of Christ is a call to all of us who are blessed by the Father. Right? The call is to come and to inherit the kingdom prepared for those who have been blessed by the Father from the foundation of the world. In my prayers, we hear that call. May we hear that call and respond, and may we share that call with the nations. Let's pray together. Well, Father, by Your Spirit and grace, would You enable us to receive the Word with faith and love? Would You grant us the ability to lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives? Would You bless those who have heard Your Word preached? And may the seeds sown in weakness show forth fruit of righteousness. For Christ's sake, amen.